morning. How's everybody doing today? If you weren't having a good day when you showed up, I bet you are now after that song. Amen? That, uh, that song fires me up. Thank you uh, to you guys, worship band. It's awesome. So, hey, I want to uh, introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Jeff Arnold. Would you say hi, Jeff? Um, I call him El Jefe. Uh, so Jeff um, and I were friends in seminary. We, got, we took a lot of our, like, particularly our Presbyterian ordination classes together uh, and, and just kind of studied uh, Reformed theology. And we just, we just really had a great time with that. Made a lot of trouble in pastor school. Matt did more than I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, also I had the great joy of serving alongside Jeff uh, at Mandarin Presbyterian Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Jeff is an associate pastor uh, there, and we got to reconnect and have a couple of years uh, serving next to each other. It was just super, super fun. And uh, Jeff's uh, uh, visiting his dad in Monterey, and uh, I found out he was uh, coming by just to kind of worship with us. I was like, well, hey, let me drag you up front. So uh, super fun. We, we got to hang out uh, in, the, in the ice storm of 2022 in Dallas, Texas, and all that. And, uh, and then he's out here visiting. So anyway, so, so it's fun to have Jeff here. Jeff, what uh, did you pray for when you were a kid? Well, when I was little as a kid, each year we would go to Yosemite right after Christmas. And so it was pretty standard that I would be praying that there would be snow. So unlike Dallas, when I was praying there wouldn't be Against snow, the snow so I could yeah. get out of town to come to Monterey <laughs> to visit my dad, I, would, I often would pray yeah. for snow. I feel like your prayers against the Dallas snow weren't that effective. My, my parents are just flying back now. They got stuck there for four days because they, they weren't as courageous slash stupid as us. Well, come to think yeah. of it, I wasn't praying against Dallas Snow. It was more of a selfish prayer that I would get out before got the it. Dallas got Snow. Got it, got it, got so. it. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I prayed for. I, I prayed every year that the 49ers would win the Super Bowl. Okay? But some of you didn't pray hard enough this year. <laughs> all right? So I, I blame you. Uh, no, we'll, we'll work harder at our prayers uh, for, for next year. Okay, we'll, we'll bring it. So um, anyway, Jeff, would you be willing to uh, read our scripture for us? I would love to. So I invite you all to stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from Matthew 6, uh, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Would you pray? Yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this day to gather and worship together. We are mindful that others around this world of yours have already gathered and sung praises to your name and lifted up prayers And we come together this day seeking to understand what it is that you would have us do in your kingdom. God, I know how often it is for me to think about my kingdom and put myself in that place, but help us, God, this day to have eyes to see the way that you want to open up our understanding of your kingdom right here in this world around us. God, we love you and thank you for this day. Be present with us. Speak through Matt and use his words to touch our hearts that we might go out and touch others. Help us, God, to have the eyes to see the places that you are working, that we can join you in them. We pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. 
Please be seated. Jeff's one of my favorite people in the whole world, so it's so fun to just have him uh, with us uh, today. Hey, we're in a series. Anybody, did anybody know we're in a series? Yeah, right. We're making a big deal out of it. It's a tale of two kingdoms, and we have uh, the small group material, the life group material that goes along with it. Uh, you're welcome to grab one of those uh, on the way out. We can connect you uh, with a group. We have a symbol for each week just to kind of help us remember the crux uh, of that week because the concepts kind of build on each other. And so I just want to do a brief uh, review. So starting, you can see, start from the left side of the room. I think the symbols will come up there. Uh, we have week one, the symbol of the U-turn. We said the kingdom of God is the central message uh, of Jesus Jesus announces the active reigning power of God and that the nearness of the kingdom motivates us and empowers us to repent, which is to make a U-turn in our life. It's the power of God, the promise, the availability of God that allows us to turn our lives around. And when we do so, we switch our allegiance to the kingdom of God. Second one we have there is the upside down kingdom, which symbolizes the kingdom of God as an upside down kingdom from everything that we expect. Jesus is a king who would become a suffering servant for other people. That's not usually how the world works. When you're on top, you tend to want to stay on top. He climbs down to serve. And in such, he offers blessings to surprising people, people the world rejects. Uh, people the world looks down on, he lifts up and calls them blessed. And so it's an upside down kingdom. Uh, The third one, which was last week, the symbol of the heart, simply said, God wants your heart. We looked at the kingdom ethics of Jesus and we contrasted how Jesus talks about life in the kingdom is different than the sort of righteousness that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law taught, which is this whole idea of this kind of, kind of looking at a fine line with a microscope and what's in, what's out, and kind of always wanting to accuse other people of guilty and justifying themselves. The idea of just simply surrendering our heart to God and trying to live out the spirit uh, of God's law, which is to lead us into lives of righteousness, to love God and to love people. God wants our hearts to be surrendered to him. That's where, that's where we did so far in the series. Our symbol today, uh, this, anybody know, what do you, any guesses what this is? Oh, amazing. The symbols get more difficult later. Okay, now, this is a crown, and it comes uh, from uh, simply the, the Christian longing for God to be king, for God's kingdom to come, to see that crown on Jesus' head, to see the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the prayer that we're gonna be looking at today that Jeff read. Specifically, we're looking at verse 10, where he says that we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, That longing for the coming of the king. That's what we're looking at today. It does strike me as somewhat odd, this this language of king, this whole thing we're talking about, the kingdom of God. One thing that just strikes me as odd is, is to our kind of modern ears, the whole language of kings seems pretty strange and antiquated and foreign, right? We live in a country that was literally born by the rejection of a king. How many people have seen Hamilton? Okay. How many people like the king in Hamilton? An enjoyable character to laugh at and also mock, right? 
But King George was thought of as a tyrant, as a bully, and the whole beginning of the United States of America was a rejection of a king. We don't have kings here. So what to do with this language of a yearning for a king? I actually want to draw on the birth of this country as a metaphor for what we're understanding today, the coming of the kingdom of God. So I wanna, I wanna draw on that, that kind of foundation of the United States and it's coming to being as a metaphor. I, but as I do it, please, I am in no way equating the two, okay? Not in any way doing that, just drawing on a metaphor so we can understand the coming of the kingdom. Okay, so if anybody, in case anybody's not a, a history buff, I wanna give you a quick, uh, a quick recap on some key events in the founding of the United States so that we can use it as a metaphor for understanding what we're looking at today. Okay, in 1775, armed hostilities broke out in Massachusetts between the militia that formed in the colonies and British forces. 13 of the colonies, it was not all, there were more colonies, but 13 colonies sent representatives to Philadelphia to deliberate. What should we do? How do we respond? They deliberated for many months, and eventually they set up five people. They commissioned a committee of five people to write a Declaration of Independence. You can see the picture of them. Can we, can we pull up a picture of the three guys? Not that one, the previous picture. You don't, you don't have the other one. Okay, well, there's a famous picture of three of them. Uh, that we don't have, that is uh, Ben Franklin, John Adams, and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson. But the other two guys didn't become famous, so they didn't make it in the picture. Okay. <laughs> so they wrote this declaration, and then they brought it to the larger committee. Let's show them the next picture. Uh, and this is the, uh, the Continental Congress gathered together. They've presented the document. They deliberated over it and on July 4th, 1776. They voted to approve it. And they signed it. Now, most of that document that we see uh, signed here, most of the document is just a list of the injustices of King George. King George was terrible. And here's all our evidence. He did this and he taxed us this and he made this terrible rule and he took from us. King George was awful. And therefore, we decide today that we're going to start a new country. And we want a better government. We want a better way of being. We, we think there's a better way to live in community with other people under different rules, different legislation. We reject the old king and we set up this new thing that's coming to birth. So today, that document is regarded as a national treasure. Uh, people come from hundreds of miles away to just gaze at a copy. Anybody ever seen it? There's a few of us, I've seen it. Uh, if you go to Washington, D.C., uh, the principal original is stored with all kinds of security measures because every once in a while, people try to steal it to see if there's a treasure map on the back. <laughs> so thank you, Hollywood, for that. Okay, here's why I think the 4th of July and the kind of the, that uh, foundational moment is helpful for us understanding the coming of the kingdom of God. We celebrate it as though it's the birth of the country. 
But all that actually happened on that day is a bunch of dudes signed a piece of paper, okay? Declaring something to be true. They declared the old kingdom was no more, it was gone, and a new government, a new realm was forming. But on that day, no other country on earth recognized that piece of paper as having any value. They didn't say, oh, look, some guys signed a piece of paper. Now King George no longer rules that land. And you know who especially didn't recognize the piece of paper? King George. King George laughed at it. He mocked it. Ha, like that's nothing. You know, you'll be back, right? Like he sung that song, apparently. Uh, Huge populations, even within the land itself, Uh, did not recognize that piece of paper as having value. And so you have a signing of a declaration saying this is now true. There's a new realm at work and we've thrown off the old realm. But there's a long period of time that takes place until it becomes a fully recognized, established fact. And that period is called the revolution. And it raged, a war raged for years after that moment in which people who longed for a new government to be established, they tried to overcome all sorts of obstacles to make it so. The people who yearned for the country to exist struggled to make it so. They fought battles, they marched hundreds of miles barefoot, they froze at Valley Forge, Five years later, they won a great victory at Yorktown, capturing Cornwallis's army, and yet still they waited two more years until in 1783, the British finally signed the Treaty of Paris. Now, if you look at this picture, this was um, a, a posed portrait of the signing of the Treaty of Paris in which the British uh, finally signed and said, okay, fine, we now recognize this fact that you have this new country and we no longer have dominion over you. The portrait was never finished. You know why? Because the British soldiers refused to pose for it. They're like, come on guys, like this is a great moment for us. Would you let us all pose? It's gonna gonna be a nice picture for history. And they're like, we're not gonna be the face of victory. We're out of here. They signed and left. And so they weren't able to finish the portrait. So think about the period in between the signing of these two documents, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and then over here, nine years later, the signing of the Treaty of Paris. And all the period in between the two signings, you have the revolution. Okay, why am I telling you all this stuff about American history? It's because of this. In the kingdom of God, we realize that we are now in the period of the revolution. Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom. And he has said the kingdom has come near to you. The power of God is at hand here in this moment. The kingdom is here. And yet the tyrant Satan has not yet surrendered. He's been defeated. As Christians, the the outcome for us is not in doubt. 
We don't, uh, not like the American Revolution where you don't know who's gonna win. We know who's gonna win. We know Jesus through the cross has conquered Satan and that he, he's lost. But he hasn't yet surrendered. There will come a time in the future in which Jesus promises he will come back and he will establish the fullness of his kingdom and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And there will be no more dying or sickness or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And we'll, we'll look at that in future weeks. But we live now in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, in between the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the eventual surrender of the enemy of God. We live now in the period of the revolution. We live now in the war. And as what we see on, on the pages of the New Testament, the pages of the Gospels, we see Jesus showing us the power the kingdom is bringing to fight this war. And that's what we're looking at today. The prayer that Jesus prays, Lord, we pray, we pray that in this period of the revolution, God, that your kingdom would come, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. More and more every day, oh God, may you reign more today than yesterday in me, in my community, all around me. Uh, theologians describe this period of, of what is the kingdom in this way. They said the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. <laughs> it sounds like kind of a, a, an oxymoron, but what it means is, is in some ways the kingdom is already here. Jesus has inaugurated, he has brought it, revolution has begun. And yet it's not yet fully arrived when we think of the, kind of the future, when God brings the kingdom in all its future glory. That, that yet has not come. So we're in the period of the revolution, the already and not yet. We are living in the period of the revolution. One day, the victory that God has brought will be known to all. The kingdom of God has been declared. It's coming more every day. And one day will be established in its fullness. And the kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of Satan. And the kingdom of God is advancing. And we are invited to join the revolution. So this is what Jesus means when he's teaching us to pray. I asked you uh, to talk about what did you pray for as a kid? I shared with you, I prayed for the 49ers winning. What did, what did, let me shout out some people, uh, or you could say in the chat at home, uh, what did you pray for as a kid? A girlfriend. A girlfriend. <laughs> Has the Lord answered your prayer? No. Not yet. <laughs> Okay, Lord, may it be so. <laughs> That's awesome. What else? A what? To pass exam. How many people here have ever prayed you pass an exam? Oh yeah, every a lot over here. Okay, what else? A bike. Yes. Okay. Your lost tortoise. Did you ever find your lost tortoise? Yes. Answer prayer. Fantastic. Right. These are things we pray for, we yearn for, right? Uh, a, a lot of times the things that we, we pray for, I mean, there's all kinds of different things we pray for, but a lot of things that we pray for is when we have some sense of discontent with a certain situation and we just yearn for it to be different. But it's not within our power to make it so and we just call it to Almighty God, oh God, 
it's not right that my tortoise is lost. May it be found, right? And we call to the power of the Almighty to make it so. Jesus teaches us in this prayer to pray, Lord, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? It's looking around at the world and having a sort of discontent with the way things are because they are out of alignment with the will of God and asking God to come in and bring healing. The Christian heart longs for the coming of the king. Uh, from the earliest days, the Christians used to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Okay. I'll tell you another prayer I prayed as a kid, and it's the opposite of what Jesus just taught us to pray. I prayed, stay, Lord Jesus, stay. This was what I prayed. I prayed, God, some people at my church told me that you might come back at any moment. You'll just show up like a thief in the night. I even know some people that are reading the signs in Revelation. They're telling me it's any day now. Lord Jesus, please don't come back now because it'll really mess up my life. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I prayed this all the time as a kid, okay? You can thank me that he hasn't come back yet. Uh, I said to God, God, I'm, I'm kind of freaked out by this thing people are telling me you might come back because I got some plans, Lord. I plan to grow up. I plan to get a girlfriend. I plan to marry her, huh? I plan to have some kids, exhibit A. I plan to grow up uh, beyond that and my kids will have kids 40 years from now. Uh, and then uh, I'm gonna have this illustrious career and I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a, a home and, and all these things and, 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 then, and, then, and then God, here's my idea for you. After I have lots of grandkids and great-grandkids and I'm 130 years old and on my dying, right before my dying breath, God, that's when you come back and save me from dying. I, I, I had it all planned out for God. And the entire history of the universe revolved around me, okay? And, and, that, and that's what I prayed because, and, and why did I pray that? I prayed that because I thought that my plan was better than God's plan. And I thought that the kingdom that I was building for myself was more enjoyable for me than the kingdom that God would bring. I imagined the coming of the kingdom as the end of my enjoyment. And what I've sort of realized since is that the more comfortable that we are in this life, the more attached we are to our plans and the more things are going great for us, the, more, uh, the less and less we call, we call on the coming of the kingdom. I think this is uh, why Jesus in that one scripture uh, talks to the rich man and says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Like he, he, what he's saying is you're so attached to the pleasures of this life it's pretty hard for you to lean into the kingdom of God. But what I have found as I've gotten a little bit more advanced in my life uh, is that the more we are acquainted with pain and suffering, the more we long for the return of Jesus. 
if you're in need of healing, like if you're in physical pain, if you have some kind of affliction, if you're, if you're at some kind of like emotional, relational pain, something is just wrong in your life, you're far more likely to say, come, Lord Jesus, come, come make this better. If you've lost someone you love who's, who's died, and you hope in the Lord to see them again, you're far more likely to say, come, Lord Jesus, I want to see my loved one again. There's this old, um, this old uh, hymn, It Is Well. You guys know this song? It's a beautiful, beautiful song. And uh, I just want to read you a few lyrics. Um, it says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then there's this refrain, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. So that song, it teaches us that because of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary, that we can say it is well with my soul and, be, and have this holy contentedness in all things, knowing that even though things are, are, um, things are troubled, you know, I know that one day things will be made right, and, and so I can have this peace in my heart. I was in a seminary class with uh, uh, Dr. Richard Mao, and he was really into hymns, and he would often reflect theologically on them. And he shared with us this hymn, and then he used it sort of as a, as a, as a backdrop uh, to share also about holy discontentedness, and in particular, the holy discontentedness of God. That while we can also look at the situation and say, okay, it's well with my soul, God's in control, that God also looks at the world and the state of the world, and he says, it is not well. Just like in the creation story when Jesus, when, when God made the world and he said, ah, it is good. It is very good. Then he looked at the fallen world with all its brokenness and its suffering and its pain. He says, that is not good. That is not well. And there's this holy discontentedness that we can feel with the current state of the world of our families, of our communities, of our neighborhoods, of all the pain and suffering and injustice in the world, and we can say, it's not good. That's not ultimately the will of God. And one day, it will not be so in the kingdom of God. This has become a refrain in my life, a sort of a spiritual discipline of Christian hope, that when I see pain, when I see horrible behavior between people, when I see just needless, senseless suffering in the world, I can just pause and say, it will not be so in the kingdom of God. I want to uh, invite you into to this discipline with me for a minute. I want to share with you some things uh, that are not the will of God, not God's ultimate desire for us as people, things that God will change in the fullness of his kingdom. And I want to invite you to say after each one, it will not be so in the kingdom of God. Would you repeat after me? It will not be so in the kingdom of God. 
So I'll say something, I'll invite you to join me in that. It is not well that over 5 million people have died in the world from COVID-19 in the last two years. That's not the will of God. That's not how it will be in the kingdom. It's part of the brokenness of this present world. Would you say with me, it will not be so in the kingdom of God. It's not well that 50% of the population of the world lacks access to reliable, clean drinking water. And it leads all kinds of repetitive, preventable suffering. That is not well. But it will not be so in the kingdom of God. It's not well that there's so many lives ruined every year by drug and alcohol addictions. But... It's not well that every year in America, somewhere between one and three million women suffer from domestic violence. But it is not well that wars rage between nations, killing, injuring, and displacing millions of people. But It's not well that in the wealthiest nation in the world, almost 40 million people are still living below the poverty line. But it's not well that an estimated 2.74 billion people in the world today live in communities that have never heard the gospel, meaning no one that they know knows Jesus. They have no credible witness to Christian faith, no one to share with them the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, no one to give them the assurance of the love of God for them. But, my friends, in the eyes of God, these things are not well. And so we live in a world in which one sense we have this holy contentedness. We can live at peace in a raging storm because we know of Christ's victory And yet we also know that God is discontent with the madness in the world. He's doing something about it. And we can also have a sense of joining God in his holy discontent for the brokenness of the world. And that's when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. This one's a mess, oh God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh God, make it better. And I live under the hope that there is an almighty God who sees the terrible suffering, who cares, and is going to do something about it. And so he teaches us to pray for it. And I think this is the, 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 some of the great headline is God cares, he knows And he's leading the revolution. And our first call is to pray. The most powerful thing that we do is we pray. That's why we want to be a church consumed and changed by prayer, right? We pray. We don't know what to pray. We just say, oh, Lord, your kingdom, come, Lord Jesus. Oh, God, it will not be so in the kingdom. Come, come, Lord Jesus. 
after the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us this teaching. It's what we studied last week. It's what we're looking at now in this prayer section. There's these three chapters of him speaking, and he teaches us to pray. Then in Matthew chapter 8, he springs into action. So his words teach and explain the kingdom, and then his actions begin to demonstrate the kingdom. And we see the revolution has begun in earnest. I don't have time to read you all of chapter eight, but I want to just kind of summarize it for you so you can have just a sense of Jesus then after he's prayed and taught us to pray, he then charges into action and starts making right some things that have gone wrong with the world. Okay, so the first uh, miracle, the series of miracles uh, that he does Actually, I'll tell you one more, one more thing before we jump into the, the actual miracles. Um, there's a, the, the Gospel of John has a different word for miracle. He calls them signs. Uh, that every time there's a miracle, Jesus does something amazing, miraculous power. It's called a sign. And the reason is that it's something that points to the kingdom. It's not just by itself a miraculous thing. It points to a deeper reality. So it's a present act that points to a future reality. So if you see a healing, he's telling you something about the future kingdom. In heaven, you're not gonna have that sickness anymore. And it's demonstrating the power and the character of the kingdom. Okay, so with that in mind, the idea of, the, of these miracles being, being these signs, uh, we're gonna look at some of these things in Matthew chapter eight. The first thing that happens, Jesus meets a man with leprosy. It's a horribly contagious skin disease that causes everyone to stay clear of this man. And what does Jesus do? I think this is the first uh, sermon I ever preached to you was on that passage. He reaches out and he touches the man. He embraces the man. He heals him. He cleans him. He returns him to society, no longer an outcast. And that's a sign to us that one day there's gonna be no more leprosy. The people say, come Lord Jesus. And it's a sign to tell us you can be embraced no matter what. He encounters a woman who's uh, uh, a mother and she's lying in bed suffering from a high fever. Jesus touches her hand and the fever leaves her. Now we've all had people sick. We've all had people die. And this miracle of Jesus is Jesus and the power of God doing combat with death and with disease, and it's a sign to us that one day those things will be no more. He's out on, a, out on the sea, and there's a huge storm, and it threatens to drown everyone. And, and it, you know, for the people in that day, the, the, the sea uh, and the storms represented the, the realm of chaos, the, the realm that's beyond the, the power of God. And, 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 and he's now, by, by calming that, he's saying, there's no more chaos. There's no more realm beyond the power of God. It has the power over all of these things, all these natural calamities and disasters. Jesus walks uh, along a road that people are afraid to travel. It's a dangerous road. It's a bad neighborhood. It's a, it's a place people don't want to go. And the reason is because there's, this, there's these uh, two violent, demon-possessed men that just attack innocent people trying to pass by. And these two guys just come running and, and, they, and they just attack. But Jesus goes on that road. He confronts these two. He commands the demons to release their hold on these men 
rescuing the men of their oppression, and then rescuing the communities from their violence. It's a sign to us that even the power of Satan is being vanquished in the revolution. Jesus hears of a paralyzed servant who is in terrible suffering. And Jesus heals him, allowing him to walk pain-free. Now, this one has particular poignancy for me uh, because um, uh, many years ago when I was first starting off in ministry, I was a high school uh, pastor and then, and then switched into college ministry. And one of the students that was with me in both places was named Nathan Streeter. I think we may have a photo of Nathan, if we can pull it up. This is Nathan Streeter. And uh, Nathan was a quadriplegic and had a number of other severe uh, limitations. So his only way to, to speak was to use the speech device. He could kind of control his tongue and had some signals with his, with his head. It was his way to communicate and unable to, to move and, and, and to walk, to move his arms and his hands were kind of gnarled up. And that's just kind of how he was. And his parents, that just this amazing, uh, amazing way of loving him and facilitating him to have a, a full life and be able to participate in events that we would do and, and to interact with people and even learn how to, how to edit videos by controlling the thing with his tongue. It was just this great, uh, inspiring story. And he also, Nathan loved... He loved sports. He loved to watch sports and he would show up and watch uh, games at UC Davis and, just, and he, he yearned that he wished he could play, right? And all those years uh, that I uh, knew Nathan, uh, his parents and I shared this vision, this dream that, that one day, one day, in the fullness of the kingdom of God, Nathan would at long last jump up out of that wheelchair and play football and dance. Now, this last fall, Nathan went to go be with his Savior. After a long struggle with many of these informants, he, he, he died, donated organs that saved a lot of other people, and went to go be with his Savior. And we believe that the promise of the revolution of the kingdom of God is that in the fullness of the kingdom, Nathan runs and he jumps and he dances, amen. When I think about my plans and my comfort, I think, stay, Lord Jesus, don't mess up my life. But every time I looked at Nathan, I said, come, Lord Jesus, come. Would your will be done on this earth? Not the, not the will of Satan. I'm all done with that. After Jesus does these miracles, this series of these signs of the kingdom, and there's inaugurating, just showing this great power, there's this village uh, that lived in the place where those two guys were being violent and Jesus kind of uh, saved them. They actually, confront, they, they don't like all this power. It scares them. And they go to Jesus and, and they say, uh, would you please, sir, move on to a different village, <laughs> you're really freaking people out. And essentially, this is, the, this is the, the decision that each person in this room that we have to make. What's our prayer? Is our prayer, oh Lord, come Jesus, we want you to be king. Or is it, go Jesus, would you please mind moving on to the next village? This is 
the prayer that we pray. And he honors the choice. So which are you? Are you yearning for the kingdom to come? Or are you stuck in my old childhood prayer, oh Lord, stay away. I got a lot of stuff going on. I want to just close with these two final, final thoughts. One of them is that the revolution is not just happening on the outside, out there in society. The revolution happens inside each one of us, okay? As, as each one of us, we have a war going on about our own allegiance. Like, we have an allegiance to the kingdom of me. I have an allegiance to my plans, my comfort, my enjoyment. I have allegiance to whatever things that get my distraction, whatever uh, things I buy into about the materialist world or the temptations of Satan. I have mixed allegiances, but I also have an allegiance to God. And there's a war, a revolution happening inside of me as I surrender more and more of this and I yearn for more and more of the coming of God. And for each one of you, the kingdom of God does battle for your heart and there's a revolution that happens inside of you. And then secondly, as that revolution takes hold, uh, Jesus can use you to take part in the revolution to win that battle for other people. When I was in Ghana, uh, our mission, as I've I've shared with you before, our, our main mission, we were trying to end child slavery on Lake Volta. It's the largest man-made lake in the world, and there's uh, 10,000 children working as slaves on this massive, massive uh, body of water. And there's like thousands of traffickers that profit off of this slave labor, and we're seeking to end it. I remember this day in which there was a rescue operation, and we worked with the police, and we rescued 12 kids. So 12 kids are rescued off the lake and that there's a couple of traffickers that got arrested and are going to be facing trial. It's exciting and people are happy, like, hey, we made a little progress. This is great, right? But then somebody expressed in a team meeting dismay. They're like, what is 12 when there's 10,000 still there? And what is this two arrested when there's still thousands of bad guys running free? And I remember the director of, the, of, of IJM in, in Ghana, he, he just said, in this really poignant moment, he said, no, today we were a sign of the kingdom. And yes, there's 10,000 kids still enslaved on that lake, but those 10,000 are gonna hear about the 12 that got rescued. That's gonna spread like wildfire. And they're gonna know that there's people out there coming for them. And they're gonna, their world's gonna be less hopeless. Some people get rescued. Maybe there is a God, and maybe he's looking out for us. Today, we were assigned to the 10,000 of the character of God. And yes, we only arrested two out of the thousands of bad guys. But we were a sign of the kingdom to all the traffickers out there of the justice of God and that they will be held accountable. And they're now more fearful of accountability. 
So don't focus on the fact that there's this insurmountable 10,000 person problem out there. Just know today, out of obedience to Christ and of love and commitment to Christ and by his miraculous power, we were a sign of the kingdom. And my brothers and sisters, this is what I want to invite you into, okay? I want to invite you into a holy discontent at the things in this world, this life, that are not surrendered to the ways of God, they're just all messed up. And to pray, oh Lord, come Lord Jesus, may your will be done on this messed up earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that, may your power be unleashed. And then we say, Lord God, change my heart, fix me, have a revolution inside of me that I might be part of your kingdom. And then, oh God, might you use me somehow to be a miraculous sign for someone else of the nearness of the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for your kingdom. We repent of our sin, oh God. We, we repent and we know that we are broken sinners. But Lord, would you come do your revolution in our hearts? Forgive us of our sin and cover us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I receive, now, uh, receive now this blessing, this benediction. May you know that his is the kingdom and that his is the victory and the power, the glory forever. May you know the victory is won and that it can be well with your soul even though you don't yet see it well with the world. And may you be a sign of the kingdom. God bless you. Amen.